Wonderful. Well, we are in the middle of this three-week series on the book of James. We're calling it Faith Works. Last weekend, it was Live It, and there are Bible notes uh, Bible notes online. You can download them all together or just go on the website each day. How many of you were here last weekend? Just raise your hand. That's good. How many of you are here this weekend? Excellent. Um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing to a people in trouble, uh, scattered believers, scattered by persecution around the Mediterranean. And James is saying to them, live it, put your faith into practice, be patient in suffering, deal with temptation, live generously among other things. Faith leads to works. The Apostle Paul celebrated the truth that we're not saved by works, but James gives us another side to the story, and that is we're saved by grace, but true faith will create fruit and works. So now we're in the second week of the three, and this week it's tame it, tame it. We're looking at James chapter three. It happened 27 years ago, but I still probably go red every time I remember it, for it is a pinnacle of the many embarrassing episodes that have happened in my life. My daughter Kelly was 10, she is now 37. We were living in Oregon and we decided to go horse riding. Now that uh, makes me just nervous saying that. I love horses, but I, I'm scared of them because they don't have a steering wheel or, or a brake. And I should have got the hint because my daughter's horse was called Satan, so that should have, that should have given an indication. And halfway through the ride, something spooked the horse and she was thrown off the horse. She broke her arm and she separated her chin from her jawbone. It was pretty, pretty bad. So now there are two versions of this story. One is what I would like to have happened, uh, the Christian leader version, it's not true. And then the other one is what really happened. Would you like to hear both? I don't know why I ask you, I'm gonna tell you anyway, so. So here's the first version. Um, I'm, I'm riding along on my horse, quietly praying, a pocket New Testament propped between the ears of the horse. Suddenly I sense a strange shift in the atmosphere. Something evil is afoot. I hear a cry. One of the kids has been thrown. I, I nudged my horse, which immediately responded, for I, as a Christian leader, have authority over all creation. I ride up to where my daughter is lying on the floor, covered in blood and screaming at the top of her voice. I slide off my horse in one smooth, athletic move. I get down beside her. She's screaming. She's crying. I say, darling, hush. Are you hurt? Yes, daddy, she said. But I'm praising the Lord as you've always taught me to do. Amen, amen, I said. Shall we sing together kumbaya? That's what I wish had happened. Now here's what happened. I'm riding along on my horse, oblivious to all spiritual atmospheres. I just want to stay on the horse. I am gripping its ears so tight. Its eyes are bloodshot. This is one wild and staring horse. Someone said, one of the kids has been thrown. I kicked my horse, which stubbornly responded, rode up to where my daughter is lying on the floor, screaming at the top of her voice and covered in blood, and I fell off my horse. I get down beside her. I look at her. I think she's broken her neck. I should have said something wise, helpful. I should have been a good Christian daddy. 
But instead, because I was so freaked out, I threw my head back and I yelled out a word that Christian leaders are not supposed to use. Look at you, some of you. So look at you right now. Some of you are going, I wonder which one it was. Mind your own business, people. But I yelled this word, don't write in, I'm not proud of it, I'm ashamed of it, but, but I yelled this word and my daughter stopped screaming. She said, Daddy, can't believe you just said that. You're a Christian leader, you should be ashamed of yourself. I said, darling, I'm, I'm really sorry, please forgive me. She said, all right then. My tongue got me into trouble. And James is saying, tame it, and kind of spookily, he even uses horses as an example in this passage. There's a lot of imagery in James chapter three. There are more images, word pictures, metaphors in this one letter than all of Paul's letters combined. And, and he's addressing people who think that they're, they're, they're pretty good stuff when it comes to faith. They think they're advanced they're fighting over who should be in leadership. They think that they're wise and understanding, verse 13. Over in chapter four, he has to tell them, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. You see, James is saying true maturity is evidenced when you can tame your attitudes and specifically tame your tongue the way we speak. So let's dive, let's dive into the text. What can we learn here? First of all, if you're following in the bulletin, first of all, don't fight for first place. Don't fight for first place. Chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Verse 14. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James is saying, don't struggle for selfish promotion and get into selfish ambition, especially in, in church contexts, but generally. In the early church, the office of teacher was held in high esteem. It was a spillover from Jewish culture where rabbis were highly respected. The word rabbi means my great one. Given a choice between helping your parents or helping your rabbi, you were expected to help the rabbi. And that culture of honor drifted into the church. It was a, a, a teaching was a great place to be. You were highly respected. And so people were scrambling for first place. And James uses a word that the Apostle Paul also uses for selfish ambition. Philippians chapter 1, verse 17, those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. And James is saying, no, don't, not only don't do that, but he's saying that if you teach, you'll be judged more strictly. Great. I haven't got that verse on my refrigerator. Now, why is that? Well, for first, surely, firstly, teaching and preaching should be influential. It should shape thinking and present doctrine. And, and so there is a heavy responsibility in the pulpit, and therefore accountability is important. We, we don't often say this kind of stuff from up here, 
But I, I, I want to say, and the reason for the hesitation is because we don't want to focus on ourselves. But I, I want to say, would you please pray for those of us who stand here and lead and preach and teach? I've been challenged recently that I don't ask people to pray for me enough. The Apostle Paul repeatedly asks those he writes to to pray for him because this is a dangerous place. You say, what do you mean? Well, for, first of all, the expectations. Some people, some Christians think their leaders are slightly superhuman with perfect families and no personal issues or problems and they never have embarrassing situations, although even as I say that, you probably don't think that about me. <laughs> Truth is, God only uses ordinary people mainly because nothing else is available. <laughs> I was in one church as a guest preacher and I, I was in the restroom washing my hands, always a good idea, and a chap came in and recognized me. He said, hello, Pastor Jeff. So I'm rather surprised to see you in here. <laughs> what what does he think I do, pray about it? I mean, that's kind of... That's kind of weird. And, then, and some people can be quick to criticize leaders, uh, sometimes because they get it wrong, we get it wrong, and sometimes because they're frustrated with God and they can't slap God, so they'll slap a representative or so they perceive them of God. In fact, here's, here's what I've discovered. Some Christians get upset when they understand the sermon. I was at a conference one time and this guy preached for about an hour and a quarter in a family service on something completely unintelligible. I have no clue what he was talking about. And on my way out, I turned to a friend of mine, a fellow pastor. I said, what was all that about? He said, I, I have no idea. But he said, I think it was really deep. <laughs> and there are some Christians who think that if they don't understand that therefore it's deep, Therefore, if it makes sense, you're more likely to be criticized the better teacher you are because you're, ac you're accessible and therefore people think that you're lightweight. Pray for us. Some of you looking at me right now, you're going, Pastor Jeff, are you having a rough time at the moment in Timberline? Someone sent you a horse's head in the mail or something? No, no. I'm just saying, pray for us. Let's turn this around. This can be a place of pride. And arrogance, and none of us are impervious to that. I remember the first time, I don't want to tell you this. In fact, I'm going to drive home this afternoon, and I'm going to say to myself, self, why did you tell them that? But I'm going to tell you. I remember the first time I spoke at a major Christian conference in England, about four or 5,000 people there. I just had my first book published. It went really well, you know what I'm saying? It went well. And the next morning, people, when, as I'm walking around the conference, people are nudging each other, going, it's, it's him. That guy. And I went to the bookstore and they're lining up buying my books. And they're buying copies of the message on cassette tape. Anyone remember that? <laughs> Technology from Henry VIII's time. <laughs> and as I'm walking around, people are coming up to me and they're saying, Hello, would you like to sign my book? And I'm, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> God bless you, Jap Lucas. It's, it's him, it's him. Yes, it is I. <laughs> By the time I got back to my room, I thought like I had to grease my ears to get through the door. I'm so glad a friend of mine said, we never do anything out of 100% pure motives. It's always mixed. Why am I doing this today? I want you to be blessed. I've done my work. 
But I don't want to look stupid either. Pray for us. It's a vulnerable zone. Secondly, tame the tongue because words steer our lives. Tame the tongue because words steer our lives. Verses 3 and 4. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. James is saying, tame your words because they shape your destiny. Now listen really carefully, and someone's going to get mad about this, but I'm going to just say it. This is not positive confession. This is not that idea that if you just speak something, you can speak it into reality. This idea that if you're sick, you just have to pretend you're not sick, and then you'll get better. I want to be absolutely clear, that is not what this is saying. And I... uh, for year after years of reflection, I don't find that in Scripture. It creates unreality. A lady went to one of those churches where they teach that, where you have to say that you're okay if you're not. And they say, where's your husband? She said, he's sick. They said, he is not sick. He just thinks he's sick. She said, oh, all right, I'll, I'll go and tell him. <laughs> she came back the next week alone. They said, where's your husband? She said, he's sick. They said, he is not sick. He just thinks he's sick. She said, all right, I'll tell him. She came back the third week alone. They said, where's your husband? She said, he thinks he's dead. (laughs) This is not that. But rather, in a very difficult passage with some mixed metaphors, James is saying that our words affect the direction of our lives because our words can create situations either positively or negatively relationally. If we go around shooting our mouths off, we're going to create negative outcomes. Big things are controlled by small things. James uses a five-pound bit in the mouth of a 1,500-pound animal, a rudder, a small thing that controls a big thing, a ship. James is saying, using the analogies of the largest forms of transport of the day, that big things are controlled by little things. And it's true. Your life and the lives of others can change this week by words of encouragement as you catch people doing something right. Words can create revolution. Martin Luther of the Reformation. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Is that negatively, that's that boastful bragging that's so unattractive or that embarrassment that we have when we open our mouths and we wish we hadn't. Abraham Lincoln says, said, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open our mouths and remove all doubt. <laughs> and economies are shaped and billions are lost or gained and this is a challenge. Because words affect these things. It's a challenge for all of us. James says we all stumble. It's the last thing to be tamed, he says in verse 2. Tame the tongue. Thirdly, tame the tongue because we're armed and dangerous. We're armed and dangerous. Look at what verse 5 says. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. 
a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life <clears throat> excuse me, on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. He's saying, tame your words because they have great power to damage. Years ago when we lived in Oregon, some, uh, an English couple moved over to Oregon to pastor a church there. And we went over as a family to have breakfast with them. And uh, he had decided, this pastor, this English pastor, to go and buy himself a gun. And he was quite excited about it. And we were sitting having breakfast and he came into the uh, kitchen with a 308 rifle, which he thought was not loaded. Yeah. He's standing at the end of the table and he's excited about this and he pulled the trigger and the bullet hit the wood stove and ricocheted across the table right between Kay and I and our kids and hit the ceiling. And we all burst into tears because a gunshot inside a room that size was deafening, cordite smoke. We all burst into tears. We all went into shock. And we literally looked around the room to see if everyone was still alive. We were weeping. And his wife screamed at him, which I agree with. And he's, he's flustered, he's, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed, he wants to change this. So he ran into the bedroom and in trying to make the gun safe, he put another round up the barrel, pulled the trigger and blew a hole in the rug. At which point his wife said, get the hence out of the house or something similar. He was armed and dangerous but he didn't realize it. And we are too. James says the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil, a wheel of evil. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting phrase, world or will. One translator says it's like a, a spinning wheel fitting, spitting fire everywhere. That links up with Proverbs 16, verse 27. A scoundrel plots evil. And his speech is like a scorching fire. A few weeks ago, I stood in Pudding Lane in London, where on the 2nd of September, 1666, a baker forgot to put the oven out. And the great fire of London began, which wiped out Shakespeare's London. 373 acres inside the city walls, 63 acres outside, 87 church buildings went including St. Paul's Cathedral, 13,200 houses wiped out and all because of a spark. We are armed with our tongues and they let us down our tongues. The medieval Catholic scholar Estius said this, I really like this, though nature has hedged the tongue in with a double barrier of the lips and teeth, it bursts from its barriers to assail and ruin men. Negatively, the comment that bruises. When I was a kid, we sang, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Politically, Hitler's Mein Kampf, for every word he wrote, 125 lives lost in World War II. The word spoken in anger, the gossip we pass around. Of course, I, I know. We're Christians, and we Christians don't gossip, do we? We share. <laughs> and James basically says, slow down. Think. 
Look at chapter 119. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Calvin Coolidge said, I have never been hurt by anything I did not say. I love Mark Twain's aside. A closed mouth gathers no foot. <laughs> and sometimes it's just in the tone that we use. Happened to me, can you believe this? Happened to me last night on the way to Timberline. I've got this habit. Whenever I'm preaching, I try and call my best friend in Oregon, Dr. Chris Edwardson. Apart from my wife, he and Jeannie are our closest friends. And I, I got this thing. I call him hands-free and I, I tell him, we talk about the message. And he tells me he's going to pray for me. He's on my ministry board. And he said, just last night, he said to me, what are you preaching at Timberline this weekend? I said, I'm talking about taming the tongue. He said, well, good luck with that. I said, thanks. He said, no, I meant good luck with that. And I said, yeah, and I meant thanks. And right there is an illustration of just how tone can affect things. By the way, don't write in, I don't have a theology of luck. That's not the way this is. But do you see the tone can change everything? Have we been wandering around armed and dangerous, shooting our mouths off is there a pattern that needs to stop number four number four tame the tongue with the help of God tame the tongue with the help of God all kinds of animals birds reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue and I read that and I'm like what because James you just told me Tame the tongue. And I just told everybody, tame the tongue. And then you mess it all up because you say, and no one can. Thanks a lot. What does he mean? Well, the better translation would be no human can tame the tongue. Augustine taught only God can. This is not, this is not, well, that's the way I am, isn't it? It's just me, nothing I can do. It's not that. But James is pointing us towards the transforming work of God. Christianity is not just about imitating Jesus. It's about being transformed by Jesus daily by the power of his spirit. We need God's help with this. Come to think of it. We need God's help with everything. Ladies and gentlemen, we were never designed to live life alone, trying to do our best, stand on your own two feet. It's not that. And it's been interesting over this weekend, at the end of a message primarily about the way we talk, people have been becoming Christians this weekend because perhaps of the realization that they need God, not just for the way they talk, but the way they live. Maybe you've come to the borders of your own resources and at last you're realizing that you can't do this. And let me tell you, that doesn't make you weak. It just means that you're discovering the truth. You were never designed as a human being to live life isolated from God. You were made to walk with God. And I want to stand behind this pulpit and say kindly, but without apology or hesitation, 
And that's not just having a little bit of spirituality here and there. We affirm humbly and kindly that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. I could use an amen right there. And so, even on a weekend where we're talking about the way we talk, it could be that this is the moment where you say, I need to become a follower of Christ. I want you to know that in about just a few minutes from now, that opportunity is coming. And I want you to be thinking about that and perhaps be ready for that. We can't do this ourselves. G.K. Chesterton, looking at Christianity, said this is impossible stuff, and it is without God. Tame the tongue with the help of God. Number five, tame the tongue and be consistent. Tame the tongue and be consistent. With the tongue, James says, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. There's an interesting phrase here where he's talking about people, human beings made in God's likeness. Don't want you to miss it. In that culture, if you cursed the image of the king, a statue, you curse the king. And James is borrowing that idea and he's reminding us, you know when you curse that human being? You're actually by derivation, derivation you are you are, in a way, cursing the creator who made that person. It's a call to respect. But it's also a call to consistency. He's talking about we praise our God. In the early church, these mainly Jewish Christians had a habit, which we are about to adopt just for a moment. And during the service, they would say together, blessed be he, or they would exclaim it. It's a bit like praise the Lord. They would say, blessed be he, speaking of God. Let's say blessed be he together. Good practice, one more time. Blessed be he was was peppering their, their gatherings, but then they were going out of their gatherings and cursing each other. That can happen. It might have happened this morning, because it's easy to be good and nice around here. You know, some of some of you parents, you came here this morning and the kids were acting up, weren't they? They weren't acting up. It was like the Battle of Armageddon was being recreated in the back of your car. And, and you were getting madder and madder. And you're, and you're like, will you quit that? And I'm grounding you for the next 45 years. And, and you got mad and you were angry. But then you pulled onto the Timberline parking lot. Ooh. And that angry, mad demeanor changed. And you parked your car and you got out the car and you saw someone from your small group and he's, hey buddy, how you doing? God bless you, praise the Lord. <laughs> and your kids look at you and they're very afraid. <laughs> because two minutes ago you were the Gadarene demoniac. And now you're the angel Gabriel. 
or it can happen when you get out of here today. Praise the Lord. And then you get out on that parking lot and that idiot with nine fishes on the back of his car pulls out in front of you and you, blessed be him. And James is saying, be consistent. God help us. It's not how loud you sing. Maybe it's how you treat the server in the restaurant. Number six, finally, tame division and be a peacemaker. Tame division and be a peacemaker. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, there's something really interesting in here, buried in here, because when James uses the word wisdom, remember, he's talking to people who think they're doing pretty good. And he uses the word sophos, from which we get the word sophisticated. You know what James is saying? James is saying, you think you're pretty sophisticated? Well, then live wisely. And then one element of that wisdom is a submissive attitude. James calls us to a submissive, reasonable... In fact, Matthew Arnold translates this as sweet reasonableness. When we are willing to admit that we get it wrong. When we are peace-loving, we don't relish a fight. We don't look to be offended. Well, as we wrap this up, James, James calls us to this, and I, I'm happy to tell you he lived it. Because he ascended to primary leadership in the church when Peter fades out of the picture and he navigated a major conflict and helped the believers hear each other and find each other again. They called him James the Just. James the Just. I've been challenged by that. If I was going to be named something, what might my name be? Hey, what might your name be? God helping us. Let's tame it. Well, we're going to pray now, and I want you to know what's about to happen. Because I mentioned earlier that we would, we would, uh, there'd be an opportunity for people to become Christians. And that opportunity is, is here right now. So if you're ready, why don't we bow our heads together? And here is a prayer that you can use if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus. Right now, 10.57, 10.58, Sunday morning here in Colorado. Here's a prayer that you can whisper after me if you'd like. God, I need you. Save me. I don't want to do this by myself anymore. I invite you to take charge of my life. I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me. Thank you that your death on the cross means I can be forgiven. Thank you that your resurrection means I can be with you always. So take charge now. I invite you in.